1: Hi, this is Jason Voss, Content Director with CFA Institute. Uh, Thank you for joining us on another Take 15 interview. This is where we interview leading practitioners of finance as well as great thinkers. Um, My guest today is Leo DeBever of AIMCO in Canada, and we're going to have a very lively discussion about his unique worldview. Welcome. Well, thank you. I wonder if you could uh, establish an investment context. Um, I think it's always important to like, lay down the current yeah. context. This may be viewed, for all we know, five years from now. Like, oh. What's going on right now that people should be
0: appraised of? Well, we're, we're living in a world where the outlook for the bond markets either terrible or really terrible. The outlook for the stock market in the short run is a little dicey, but in the long run probably below average. Uh, so I think the, the, the problem that people like me face is where are you going to find return to finance pension plans that are expected to earn 6% a year or whatever. Um, and uh, the conclusion we've come to is that you have to look a little harder in darker corners, uh, some unconventional strategies, think a little differently about the opportunities that you face, and take advantage of the fact that there is an enormous amount of new opportunity around there, or long, uh, uh, long emerging uh, technologies.
1: Right, and I know you have specific views you know, with regard to current you know, worries about stagflation, growth, deflation, inflation. I wonder if you could talk about some of that.
0: Well, um, I think ultimately uh, the, the outcome of the current episode is going to be inflationary. In part because uh, the biggest problem we face, or one of the biggest problems is debt to GDP on the fiscal side, and one way to alleviate that is to have a bit more inflation in the system, so eventually that 's where it 's going to go uh, right now, not because uh, the economy is not burning or running on all cylinders, sure. so the central bank is trying to uh, keep it going so Um, The lower growth hypothesis, which uh, some well-known economists uh, subscribe to, I disagree with that completely. I think there's a lot more productivity coming down the pike, which initially causes a problem because we're not at full employment. But in the longer run, should give us uh, a growth in standard of living that we've been looking for, for for some time now.
1: Right, and I know that one of the things that gives you confidence right in mm-hmm. this somewhat optimistic viewpoint is because you have a very unique investment philosophy, one that I appreciate um, called investing between the cracks. I wonder if you could for our listeners talk about that a little
0: okay we we 're used to, to do asset allocation we 're doing risk allocation we 're risk managers more than asset managers and once you start thinking that way it doesn 't matter what an asset, what box an asset fits into all you care about is what is its risk what it 's expect to return. And what you find with standard stocks and bonds is that we've done so much analysis of them. We've uh, data-minded everything out of it. We know exactly to five decimals what the return on risk is going to be in the long run. And the better opportunities are in places that are sort of in between stocks and bonds. Private equity, it looks a bit like real estate. Real estate looks a little bit like bonds. those in-between opportunities tend to have the higher return on risk, and that's what we're going after. Yeah, I think that makes
1: a lot of sense. You know, I, I was an investment manager for a number of years, too, and I, I you know, would spend a lot of time looking at a business or uh, you know, a cash flow generator. Right. And uh, my next question was, where in the capital structure do I want to own them? And it sounds like that's you right. do a similar thing.
0: Like the example I used today was um, uh, Double B Bonds. Uh, why would you uh, like the equity of a company but not like its double B bond. I mean, the double B bond is less risky than the equity, so um, you basically line them up on a risk-return spectrum, and if it turns out that for whatever reason the double B bond has a higher return on risk than the, the equity, then you pick it rather than the equity. In fact, that is a general conclusion we've come to. Um, there's a systematic bias in markets, both bond and stock markets, where return on risk uh, is lower at the higher risk spectrum. In other words, uh, 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 the further out you go in terms of risk for bonds, the lower the return on risk is. And the same thing seems to be true in the long run for equities. In other words, if you go to the very volatile equities, they don't necessarily give you the better return in the long run. Right. I wonder if you could talk about, uh, please, Leo, some of the big
1: questions you feel investors are you know, confronted with right now.
0: Well, the, the one that's vexed me in the last uh, year or so, I mean, you look at some of the, uh, you look at the really slow recovery coming out of 2008, and you say, well, is that just a cyclical recovery? Is it an aftermath of the financial crisis? Or is there more to it than that? And I've come to the conclusion there's a lot more to it than that. And it revolves around the fact that starting around 1980 and microelectronics or computers and so on, and the Internet and, and the uh, faster communications that that facilitated, you've got a, a wave of new technology coming through that could be as important as what we saw, for instance, in 1900 when we had the internal combustion engine and electricity networks and so on coming in. This could be just as, as important. And the difference is at that time we were replacing muscles. This time we seem to be replacing brains, which means that some jobs are going to become obsolete and we're going to have to retrain people to work alongside these these smarter machines. Uh, I'm a great fan of Andrew McAfee, just wrote the book uh, Race Against the Machines. And what he's really saying is we have to learn how to live with these machines, and we have to live alongside them and use them more effectively. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I know that... uh
1: That issue and that dislocation is a a difficult thing to study uh, because Mm -hmm. there aren't too many periods in history where we had a lot of consciousness around that. But it sounds like you have a pretty good grasp of that.
0: When I was trained as an economist, I was a historian in growth economics. And um, if you go back to uh, 1811, which is the Luddite uh, episode and the sabotage, you know, throwing um, shoes into the machine to destroy it, When you look at what happened in terms of distribution of income and uh, the destruction of jobs, it was very similar. In 1900 and so on, again, very similar. Initially you got a destruction of jobs, then the application of the technology becomes easier and a lot of people have access to it. Uh, You can now program a robot with an iPad. You don't need to have a degree in computer science, Right. right? And when that starts to happen, the the application of the technology moves down the scale in terms of the the skill level you have to have to do it. And people start um, uh, finding the technology so productive that it uh, is possible for companies to to uh, to get more out of their workers by combining good workers with good technology. So what we need right now is faster application of technology and faster re-education of the workforce to work with the new technology. Sure.
1: Yeah, some of these new technologies, uh, wh- which ones are you particularly excited about?
0: Well, um, there are a number of them. There are a lot of them in alternative energy. Um, Like we just invested in a wind turbine that promises to be 50% more effective than what's out there. So that's really great. It's renewable. It's clean. uh, It's got a lot of um, good features. But there are other ones that are less obvious. Like I just became aware of an expert system that basically allows lawyers to do a a search of the literature on case histories that is almost flawless in terms of uh, documenting what happened in the past, as opposed to, say, a human doing the same thing at 65% effectiveness. You put the two together, and you're going to have the same phenomenon that we observe in chess. Everybody knows that Kasparov lost to a chess machine. Right. Well, now, having a moderately good chess player or set of chess players work with a moderately good chess program will beat either the chess program or the human expert. And and that's really uh, McAfee's point. You have to run with the machine. You have to learn how to live with it, have it do what it is good at, and you supply the stuff that you're good at. And the combination of the two is way more po- powerful than you would have if, if each of you tried to do the same thing independently. Yeah, very interesting. So what are some of your big themes? Uh, we're working, and, and this is, there's only one new theme ever since i've been at ontario teachers we worked on food because there's a great increase in demand for protein mm-hmm. in asia given the, the new middle class that's emerging there and so uh, areas like alberta where agriculture is, is big have to supply more food and we're working on technologies that allow the productivity of agriculture to increase then energy every major Uh, change in productivity and standard of living has revolved around either the use or the production or the conversion of energy and it's happening again Uh, and then materials um uh, if, if, if Asia and India tried to uh, evolve with the energy intensity that we were used to at their stage of development, there wouldn't be enough to go around. So there's a lot of innovation in the use of materials that can be very productive to invest in and profitable to invest right. in. And then there's technology itself, the fact that... Um, brains are being replaced by machines, and that we have to retrain ourselves to work with that. And there's some really good opportunities. What I find interesting, I, I've been here in San Francisco now for three days. Some of those big opportunities revolve, I have such a big, a short payback period, sure. that uh, you know, if you can make an expenditure and get your money back in six or nine months, why wouldn't you do that? Right. right? And, and so it's those opportunities that excite me. And instead of being afraid, uh, I'm more excited about the fact that they're going to have that positive impact that we talked about earlier.
1: Leo, you have seemingly a very broad world view. I'm guessing that your reading list is pretty extensive. I wonder if you could talk about
0: some of the things that you use to help you discount that information landscape. Well, lately, uh, this whole question of productivity and, and the, the innovation and why the normal indicators are breaking down, uh, I found uh, McAfee's book on uh, Race Against the Machine very, very, very uh, descriptive of the conclusion that I reached personally, but he said it way more eloquently. That's the nice thing about being a professor, right? You can focus on making it sound good. Right. Uh, but that helped me. Before that, Triumph of the Optimist was a really uh, an eye-opener uh, in the sense that it helped me illustrate to the people I work for how volatile markets are on a multi-year basis, and how our concept of um, that we're able to produce predictable returns over, say, a four-year horizon—that is just completely wrong. Uh, risk does not depreciate or does not diversify over time. The absolute risk actually increases mm-hmm. in terms of outcomes. Uh, so that was that was good. But I, I, I read almost anything on um, new ideas, new ways of looking at it. I find that in building investment teams, the same thing. Finding people who have different ways of looking at the same problem usually ends up producing a much better result. So you need to read, you need to argue, you need to look at things from a different perspective. And no idea is too crazy because usually there's some element of truth to it that you can use in designing a better policy than the one you started with.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I had analysts that worked for me, and I would encourage them always, okay, yes, there are your knowledge boundaries and what you do know, but that's less interesting than what you don't know. That's always going to be a larger set. And identify what you don't know and go explore there. It sounds like you have a similar philosophy.
0: It is, and you have to be very careful that you don't overestimate what you do know. And in our field, um, I truly believe that uh, the returns on assets, the return on assets has less to do with technology then it has to do with how the technology is changing the landscape and the trade-off between fear and greed and the volatility of returns that flows from there. In other words, ten people could look at the same technology and come up with ten different conclusions where it eventually will pay off or not pay off. And it's that uncertainty and difference of opinion that ultimately shapes markets. And that's what you have to try and figure out. It's a good example of that. At one point we did an analysis of S&P 500 uh, in terms of the defined benefit obligations that were not priced into the stock. Right. And uh, so we underrated the ones that had a big exposure. We didn't get rewarded because it took the market a long time sure. to figure sure. that one out.
1: Right. Right. right, I get it. So so my final question, uh, and this is a question that we oftentimes don't ask in finance, but I think is nonetheless important. What books that are non-finance related, you know, non-investment related, have informed your thinking and your worldview that contribute to how you do your work?
0: Um, Robert uh, Kaplan's book on uh, the coming anarchy in, in the 90s. And I'm reading his latest book on it. I think it's called The Terror of Geography or something to that effect. Um, and, and the fact that sometimes we do not factor in the broader geographic or geopolitical context in what we're doing. And it's often difficult to know, right? It's uh, that famous thing about unknown unknowns, which right. Frank uh, Knight came up with early on in the last century, um, and, it, and, and and there's certain things that are just intrinsically unknowable. But trying to read enough history and and y- makes you see that a lot of these things have happened before. Mm-hmm. Like what's happening now, there's in, in central banking. A lot of that happened in the 30s. Uh, like take take Europe. In the 30s, France was ganging up on Germany and see where that led to, right? Now Germany is ganging up on France and Italy and Spain. So it's it's amazing how little we learn from experience. We tend to repeat the same mistakes, and that's what I'm worried about. And so given that history sort of repeats itself, as an investor, I'm trying to make sure that I know just a little bit better than the next guy, where this is all going to lead. The way I picture this is you're in 1903. You're trying to figure out where the internal combustion engine and the airplane and the electricity grid, where that leads. If I had been able to realize that it would change the pattern of uh, uh, city formation, uh, the way people live, the access to running water and and, and, uh, sewage systems, if I had realized all of that, maybe I would have made some decisions around that time that would have made money for my clients. I want to do the same thing now. given that we know what technologies are out there, can we just be a little bit better in terms of anticipating where it all leads and taking advantage of the opportunities that are going to be big winners? Leo, thank you very much for being with us, and thank you very much for tuning
1: in. If you would like more of our Take 15 series, go to www.cfainstitute.org. Thank you.